Hello, I'm Vincent. I'm an alcoholic and uh, an all-round addict. I'm two years clean in October. And when I've started, I've done a few shares, and all of them were pretty much just story after story. Didn't have anything about recovery, but I hadn't been in it long enough. And I'd spend like, I could talk about stuff I've done for days. You know, and then it was like five minutes on recovery. I didn't have enough recovery to really know anything about it, but I've got a little bit more now. I'll tell you my story. I'll go through my story. I couldn't tell you everything. It's too much. Mum and dad are both Irish Catholics. I went to Catholic school. I was an altar boy, Sunday school, all of that sort of stuff. And I was, I've got three brothers. Oh, let me just count. Marcus, Anthony, Junior. Well, five brothers, two sisters, and me. And um, I was the only one who had to go to church. I was the oldest, and I hated it. I um, I start first time I picked up a drink. I was five, and my dad, he crashed his car, and I ran outside to see if he was all right, and he hit me. Time to get back in the house. He was all, he, he was all right, obviously. And he hit me and I got, went, ran back in the house, went into the garage and got some cans, Carlin Black Label. And I hid in the cupboard under the stairs and I drank them, crying. And that was the first drink. Well, my first drink was in isolation. I got, I mean, I, I was drinking and smoking cigarettes every day. I was seven, eight, and it was an everyday thing. My dad used to beat me up. I've had all sorts of broken bones. This, I don't want to go into it too much, but that was just how he was. And I, I felt unwanted, so I drank a lot on my own. It was how, how, how it started for me. And then he got, then I got sent to boarding school, 150 miles away, which from where we lived, which just proved to me that they didn't love me. And I was 12 and I'd already been at a boarding school for three years, it was closer to home. And um, then at about 12, I was, I was drinking a bottle of vodka a day on my own. I wasn't going to school. Or if I did, I, I was causing trouble. But I, I, I kept passing all my exams at school somehow. I was captain of the football team, the rugby team, cricket team. I was in all the sports teams. And I, I, and I got by. But I drank my whole time I was at school. I mean, I, went, I got expelled from seven schools. I was talking about this other night to someone. And I must have went to school with over 4,000 people. I, I, you know, I got expelled from that many. And I don't know one single person who I went to school with. That's how much I didn't associate with people. And I was drinking, I was taking drugs. I went to the one boarding school. And there was Father Whelan, Sister Helen, and they were they just pure evil. Leather straps, canes, hitting you, hitting you around the head. You know, I know I lost all touch with the church and everything. I lost all, all, all that sort of thing. And I, I drank at school on my own, took drugs on my own. And when I left school and I started, I left school, I passed all my, my exams. I left school with 9-0 levels. So I, I, I don't, I don't know how, because I was drunk the whole time I was there, and I, I was very insular. I didn't, 
didn't have any friends where we lived. I don't know whether that was because I, I mean I didn't really like going out, but also because of being at school so far away, I didn't get the chance to really make connection with anyone. So when I left school, I started going to the pub. And a few, if I had a few drinks, I got a bit of confidence and I started to get on with people. But I could, I, I could never walk into a pub on my own and I still couldn't even at the end. If I was going into, if I was the first one in the pub, which more often than not I was, that was fine. But if I walked into a pub and there was people in there, I'd have to phone someone up inside to come out and walk in with me because I'd be too, I, I, I was too self-conscious of walking into places. The drink got me confidence, also got me arrested a lot of times. Didn't know what I was doing. I drank to blackout from the first time I drank. I drank to, to forget things, and in the end, I just drank because, I, I don't know, I just loved drinking, loved everything about it. But I, used, I started... Um, I, got, I, I was put in a ball I was 16. That was to drive, that was stealing cars, drink driving. So I wasn't even old enough to drive. I got locked up for being a football hooligan, fights, theft, just all oh, this was before I was 21. So I was powerless, I knew then I was powerless over drink. So instead of doing something about giving up drink, I've done the next best thing to stop myself from getting arrested as I started taking low copious amounts of drugs. And it was speed and acid and the usual things to start with when you're younger. And then um, it progressed to ecstasy, which I, I, have, to, I have to be honest, I, I, I loved and I loved them. I loved taking these and I look back and I've got no regrets over it. I had about six years going to raves and I had a fantastic time, you know. I know some people say, oh, the whole, the whole experience was horrific, but my whole drinking experience and drugs, it wasn't all horrific. I had some fantastic times and that, that was a few years of it. But what ruined my life was cocaine. I was about 27 and I've tried it before, but I it, it was just here and there. But then I got a serious habit for it and everything went downhill. So 27 till I was 51, till I stopped. And it started as a Friday night thing to an every night thing. My resentments towards my dad, I used to drink on it. I used to blame him for everything, you know. And not everything was his fault, you know. I had... Um, I mean, my drinking was, I was out of control, but then at work, again, work, work was, I was very successful. I, um, my dad and my uncle started a scaffolding company over here in England. And um, when I was 30, me and my cousin Robert took over and we sold it three years ago. And when we sold it, it was the biggest scaffold company in Great Britain. And an American, we wasn't looking to sell it. American company coming in and offered us that much money. It would have been stupid to say no. And then we employed anything from 1,500 people to up to 3,500 people. So we were successful at what I did. But I, and I could go to work and I could get things done at work. But I'd drink all day at work. I'd take drugs all day at work. 
and I was a control freak. I'd OCD, I had to have everything, I had to be lined up in a certain way. I didn't trust anybody to tell me what was happening. And I'd have sites with 300 men. I'd stay at work till 11 o'clock because I know drinking and sniffing cocaine in the office, doing all that work, running around the sites in the day because I wouldn't trust the foreman, my site managers. I didn't trust the wages clerk to do the wages. I had to, I had to do it all myself. Um, but eventually, just got the drink and the drugs just took over everything. I started letting things slip at work. We're still making money, but you know, it wasn't. I didn't lose the OCD or the, the the controlling nature. I just got to. I didn't give. I didn't give a fuck about anyone. So, I went. I mean, I'm overweight now. I've had another cake binge. I've been on holiday for a week, but I um, I just left everything. I walked away from the company and and I dedicated myself to full-time drinking and drug-taking without work, getting in the way. I got every girlfriend I've ever had. I didn't cheat on them, I just let them down. I could go out on a Thursday and not get back. Sometimes it was months, sometimes it was a couple of days. I didn't care about anybody. I hated myself, didn't care about myself. I just basically just, just caused chaos everywhere. Everywhere I went, there was trouble, there was chaos, there was mayhem, whatever you want to call it. I wasn't a nice person. I don't think it's hard to be a nice person when you don't like yourself. But this kept going on till I was 40. When I was, I got married at 36, had two children, and we was divorced by 40. But I'd had a breakdown at 40, and I was putting a psychiatric hospital, not sorry, whatever you want to call it, and they put me on all these drugs for a week. And I, um, I was in there for six weeks, then I was in a halfway house for six weeks, but I was drinking the whole way through that as well. I come out of there, I got, got a little flat, and then I started, I started selling drugs and whatever, doing all sorts of things again, like I was, like, I was a 16, 17-year-old with my newfound freedom. And uh, I carried that on for 10 years. I can't really, I've got to be honest with you, there's probably 25 years of my life I can't really remember a lot of. I was just having a WhatsApp with a girl. I'm going some, to the Isle of Wight, which is up by us in October. And she told me where she lived. And I said, I work there on a house in a stove. And she sent me the name of a house and start, and I had to message her back. I can't remember what it was called because I was drunk the whole time I was there, and it was like three years ago. And I can't remember it. There's great swathes in my life that I just don't know anything of what I've done. People could have told me I'm doing anything and I believe them. Oh, that's the sort of state I, I was getting in, in, in my life. When, we was fifth, when I was 50, we sold the company. I got a lot of money. On a bought a house that I'm in now. And there's, I can remember sitting there the one day and I had the double doors open in the kitchen, a nice oak floor, a nice wide hallway, sitting at an oak table, the big 85 inch telly on the wall. 
and I felt nothing. It meant absolutely nothing to me at all. Just had no feelings. I was, I don't know, morally, spiritually, physically, mentally. I, don't, I was just completely broke. My dad, a few years ago, had lung cancer, and he had a third of one lung took out, and two thirds of the other one took out. And I drove up to the hospital to see him. It was in Manchester, so a couple of hours away from where I live. And I drank beer, smoked weed and sniffed cocaine all the way there. And I was gone, so I was on my own. Got there, booked into a hotel, had a shower, got changed, went and seen him. And he had two things coming out of the side of his lungs into two buckets on the side with all blood spluttering out of him. My sister was crying, one of my brothers was crying, and I sat there and I was just numb. Didn't feel anything. And it wasn't, I didn't feel hatred towards my dad because of what happened when I was a kid. I was just, I had no feelings. It didn't seem to matter what the situation was. I, did, I was just completely numb to everything and everyone. So, this, in 2019, in January 2019, I had a pal from years ago, Mark Brand, and he was an alcoholic, and he got found on a park bench, and he froze to death, drunk, got died of hypothermia. In the April, a girl who went out with Emma, she was 40, and she died. She'd had cancer, and she had two children. And her husband had died the year before we had a brain aneurysm and he died. Then in the July, another friend of mine, Paul Ryan, he'd been suffering from depression and no one knew. And he hung himself. So I had all these things going on in the year. And I look back and that was all things that got me to um, October the 5th, 2019. And I walked out my house to the pub and it's five minutes up the road. And I had two cans of beer and three spliffs. A can and a spliff for the walk there, a spliff while I was there, and a can and a spliff for walking back. So I drank the can, smoked the spliff, went in the pub, had a pint, walked out, had the other spliff, come back in, ordered another pint, chicken and chips, had that, walked home with the can of beer and the spliff. And I felt all right, didn't particularly yearn. I wasn't thinking about, I need to give up or anything like that. And I walked out my front door and I walked upstairs and I'm on the bed where I'm sitting now. And I just curled up in a ball and I started crying. And I just thought, I don't want to do this anymore. I've just, I'd had enough. I just didn't want to do it anymore. And I phoned my brother up, Paul, and he was 10 years clean in January. And all I said to him was, I'm ready. And he put the phone down on me, jumped in his car. I think he drove 30 miles in about 15 minutes. So if you had any speeding tickets, I'd probably owe him for them. But he come, gave me a hug. He said, we'll sort it out. The next day I went and saw, I seen a counsellor. And he said about going to a rehab in South Africa. And I said, yeah, I'll do it. So I had a nurse come round every day for a week 
put done me up a detox. So by the time I'd got to South Africa, I was 12 days. I hadn't had any drinking drugs. And I just thought, I'll go there. I'll stop drinking, stop taking drugs. Three or four months in the three months in the sun, it'll be good for me to get away from everything. Pretty much like everyone. I just thought you have to give up drink, stop taking drugs, and everything just becomes fantastic. Well, I was wrong about <laughs> I got that wrong. They turned around and they said, I've done the steps and I've done it the way you're supposed to, but without the God bit. And step 11, I gave that a miss, the prayer and meditation. But as for the rest of it, I've I, I done it. And I, I enjoyed doing it, but I, I had to, um, there was a lot of stuff to go through from my childhood, stuff with my dad, girlfriends. So I, I had to go back through everything I've done in my life. And I went from hating myself to despising myself. That even in the morning, brushing my teeth, I, I couldn't look at myself. And the, the clearer my head got, the worse it got because everything started coming back. And I had a, but I worked hard in my hand. I could um, I could do the steps and take the God bit out of it with that. It didn't bother me. It didn't worry me. I know some people can't see past the God bit, but you don't have to use God to do it. And I remember I was doing, on step three, Keena, my character, she said, you have to write down 20 things that you've never told anybody before. And I said, I'm not doing that. She said, you've got to do it. I said, no. She said, just, you've got to write down 20 secrets. I said, I'm not doing it. And she said, well, I said, the secrets. I said, and she said, well, just try. So I wrote down a couple of silly little things and whatever. And eventually, it took me two weeks. And I, I, I got up to the 20. And she said, well, come on, we'll go and read them. But I only had to do it with her. And she said, you don't, I don't even speak to the other people. The other counsellors about what you say here. And I know we were sort of chewing and throwing for a few minutes about whether I should do it or not. And in the end, I've done it. And it was like this big block of pressure valve in my head got released because I'd got this stuff out. I mean, I know you get all these slogans, secrets keep you sick and stinking thinking and blah, 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 and all that. But it genuinely did work for me. Give, telling her this secret. So that was sort of step three. And then step four, and more step four was a hundred and something pages. You know, there was a lot of stuff. I mean, I've hardly told us anything about, about my life. It's just, it's only, it's only horror stories. You've heard them all before. And um, I've done that and I've read that out. Then the, the one that, that really done, I think it was uh, Step Out, made a list of people who we needed to make amends to. Well, I thought that was quite simple because it Step Four, you know, had, had all your resentments in it. And then I realised sort of halfway through it, I started thinking about my dad. And I'd already wrote a letter, no forgiveness. It was a no send. He's 76. He doesn't think he's ever done anything wrong. We call him the Irish Donald Trump. There's nothing anyone's done that he hasn't done better. But he's all right, though, you know. And I get on with him now. But I had 
I had to make amends. I had to make amends to my dad, but I had to do it without a but. And I had to just look at what my part in this thing was. I had been to jail. I had been to Borstals. I had stolen cars. I did get expelled from seven schools. I was a football hooligan. I sold drugs. I'd done a lot of things that I shouldn't have done. So I did talk to him about it and I did apologise for, for my pipe thing, but I didn't put a butt in it. I didn't say, but you've done this. It, I, I, and I apologised from my heart. And it was another thing that helped free me. Now, my dad's never going to apologise to me for anything he's done, because he doesn't think he's done anything wrong. He's 76, so the way I had to work that with him was I had to accept what has happened had happened and to put it in the past and leave it in the past. And I've been able to do that. And since I got back last February from rehab, 2020, and in March, lockdown started. So I started going on Zoom meetings. And to start with, I wouldn't go through the, I couldn't get through the preamble. I was looking at all these people on the screen thinking, I can't do this, I don't know who you are. And I'm making excuses to not do meetings, not talk to people. And surprise, surprise, within a couple of weeks, I didn't want to drink or type drugs. But the other behaviours, the moodiness, the isolating, wanting to be left on my own, and you know all the other things around what had made me drink and take drugs, that was all creeping back in. So I started doing the Zoom meetings locally. And within a month, I'd become a Zoom addict. <laughs> I was doing three or four meetings a day. Uh, England, Wales, Ireland, America, Mexico, and some in Canada, Australia, Brazil. I went, I went all around the world and I never left my house. But then I had, to, I had to put myself in check with that as well because I was letting it take over my life and not in a good way. So... I, I, I was doing meetings and um, there's a meeting by me, it's called PAN and it's all inclusive and it follows the, like, the 12 steps, 12 traditions. And I was going on that and I knew a few people on it. So Tom and Sigrid started coming on it with me. And they, they liked the fact that you could talk about anything, it didn't matter whether it be drink, drugs, sex, gambling, overeating, undereating, it was just whatever your addiction is, just come and talk about it. And that got us thinking about, well, why don't we do one? And Tom's not, Tom doesn't like the 12 steps. You know, Tom, you know, you'll know anyway. Secret, I think Secret's a bit like me. She's, if they work for you, they work. If they don't, then something else does, that's good enough. So that's why we started up doing that. The iPad meeting, and then like, we got in with the Tusnua. I mean, I've been coming on this Saturday meeting now. I think for a couple of months, and I love this meeting. I think, and if I do, if I can get on the one on uh, one in the in the midweek as well, I do. I like the Sunday night check-in meeting. I like coming on that one as well. But I, I, I've um, I do what I'm supposed to do now. I go to meetings. I talk to people. If I've got a problem, I used to be embarrassed. I used to drink my way out of problems. 
or take drugs to forget about them. And they'd still be there in the morning. I used to bottle things up and that would cause explosions, eruptions, really. And people did, people never knew, you know, I, I only thought I was harming myself. But I've spoke to the kids about it. And they've sort of said, we used to sort of wait to see what sort of mood you was in to decide what whether what we could or couldn't say. Were we going upstairs? Were we staying downstairs? So, and what they say now, they come in the house, I pick them up from school, they come into the house, and then and I'm happy. You know, and everybody's noticed the change in me. People who haven't seen me for a while say I'm a completely different person to how I was. Um, I don't know. You see, I don't know what it is that works. I see my counsellor for an hour every two weeks. Sometimes it's a deeper, meaningful, what do I do about this? And other times you're just like chatting to a pal. It's an expensive chat with a mate, don't get me wrong, but it's someone who I can... I, I, somebody asked David who won the rehab, if I've got a problem and it's this, that or the other, should I talk to my wife about it? And David said, why would you talk to your wife about something like that? He said, there's certain things that you talk, you talk to a professional, go to a meeting. You know, you don't have to share everything with your partner. You know, I, and I think that's right. I mean, my dad, I remember when I was in, when I was in rehab and I phoned him up. How are you, dad? Yeah, I'm grandson. He said, how are you getting on with your homework? Which is the steps. And I'd say... Well, I'm on step two, and, it's, and he'd go, did you watch the football or the boxing? And I'd say, I'm in a rehab, Dad. So I said, you know, it's not like, can I watch the Anthony Joshua fight at three o'clock in the morning? I said, doesn't work like that. Or Chelsea are playing Liverpool. Can we, can we stop the meeting? I've got to go and watch the game. I said, that's not quite how it works. And, uh, but... I spoke to my mum last week. Now, my mum went to uh, the Priory over here. She was in there six times for, for drink. And uh, she still drinks, but she drinks water and wine. She doesn't get drunk anymore. She's happy. And she was chatting last week. She was saying, uh, not last week, the week before, she said, well, how much drinking drugs did you take, son? And I told her, and she nearly fainted when I was telling her that stuff. But she was laughing as well. She was kind of, I never realised, she said, you was ever so good around me and you never brought any trouble to the house. Well, this is the sneakiness of drink, isn't it? You know, you get manipulating people. You know, she thought I was an angel. You know, but it was, I, I was far from, far from it. I was like, you know, but you can do these things when you drink. You can manipulate, you can lie to people and you can, you know, it doesn't, I mean, you don't, it doesn't matter to you because you don't care. Do you know, if I tell even like a little white lie, I'd done it the other way. I was sitting on the bed and I had a cup of tea and I spilled the tea, right? And the sheets are white and it's gone. Some of the tea spilled on the sheet and gone onto the quilt. And my first thought in my head was, how the fuck can I get out of this? And then I looked, can I turn the sheets around? Can I change the quilt? Can I do this? And I thought, no. Just be honest. So the girlfriend come in, I said, look, I've spilled some too. And she started laughing and I said, why are you laughing? She said, because you would have tried to have hit that two years ago. 
But even, you know, and I know it's a silly little thing, but I don't, telling lies now, it was second nature now, and telling lies and fibs or anything, it doesn't sit comfortable. It makes me feel not nice inside, not telling the truth. And that's another thing that's happened with this programme and working. And I, uh, I owe my whole life to it. Order. I've, got, I've got my life back. I mean, I went to Spain last week. With my, there was 12 of us. And there was me and my nephew, William, who's 18. He doesn't drink. And 10 drunks. Like my dad, my uncle. And they're all from Ireland. So... It, it's sort of a law in Ireland, if you drink, you sing. If you go to Ireland and you have a few pints of Guinness and you don't start singing, you get deported. They don't like you in there. So they're all trying to have a sing song. But the football's on, the internationals. So you've got Swedes, people from Denmark, England fans, Spain fans, and they're all singing football songs. And they get and my uncle, my dad, and the rest of them all get more and more annoyed by the minute. And I've said to them, I said, Well, look, you, you know, these are all having a good time. And they was all right then. They, they sort of calmed out. But they invited me on this trip. And I said to my uncle, Tommy was playing golf. I said, two years ago, I said, if I would have been the last person left on earth and you had a space available for this trip, you'd have cancelled it rather than invited me. And he said, we would have, yeah. He said, but, but, but I, I was invited. They wanted me to come on the trip. We were supposed to be going over to Ireland, but there's still too many restrictions. So that's changed till, uh, to May next year. And I think that's all around Kilkenny, all these lovely golf courses. I've never been over there. And they want me to come. I've found out since that they want me to drive the minibus while they all drink and sing, but I could, I could live with that. Again, it's... Uh, I've got a, I've got a good relationship now with my dad. I've forgiven him for the past. I haven't talked to him about it. There's no point. But up here, I have. I've um, I've gone round and I've seen people who I've wronged in, I've done wrong to. I've apologised to people where I've had to. I've done. Um, I love. I work on myself every day. I have. If I, I go down in the morning. And I have half hour, and I'll just sit there. And I was just reading something, or something to do with recovery for half an hour every morning, just to remind me where I am and where I was. And I've got a nice life now. I was existing before. Now I'm living, and you know that's the difference. And I, I didn't, uh, and I care about people. You know, if someone's hurting. If someone's hurting, someone's got a problem. I want to help them, not laugh at them. You know, and that's I was like that before. I got brought up with um, showing. Uh, so, uh, if you um, showing anything, any sign, anything, any vulnerability, that's what I was looking for. A sign of vulnerability when I was a kid was a sign of weakness. And it was my whole life. Uh, and I'm ashamed to say, but I used to, people used to come in and I used to take a sign of uh, uh, someone who was vulnerable, I used to take it as a sign of weakness and ridicule them for it. 
Whereas I've come to realise that actually showing that you're vulnerable and that you have weaknesses is actually a sign of strength to be able to say to someone, look, this is my problem. This is what I, how I feel. I mean, feelings, I mean, I didn't know what that was. Didn't want to know what that was because everyone I knew had feelings was weak. And, and it's, you know, I don't think it's, I've heard it. The good thing about recovery is you get your feelings back. The bad thing about recovery is you get your feelings back because I didn't know what to do with them. I had, um, last year, it was about May time, it was about time my birthday last year. And I had about three, two, three, four weeks. And I felt a bit, I can't describe how I felt because I didn't know what, what it was. And then it, it hit me one day. I thought this must be what normal feels like. Because I didn't have these extreme highs. I wasn't getting them, and I wasn't getting these earth-shattering lows where I just wanted everyone to fuck off and leave me alone so I could just be on my own. And it took me a while. I had to sit with it for a bit. And then I just thought, I quite like this. And um, I look round now. I do. They say, I look back on the past, and I've accepted it. I regretted it a lot to start with because I had to go to deal with a lot of things. And now I just accept it's a part of me. What's done's done. I can't change it, but what I can do is I can I can change what I do and how I act, how I behave, how I am with people, places, things, all these sort of things. I can do that on a daily basis. But on a daily basis, I if I start forgetting what I am and I go back to my old ways, I've got no hope. So I work on myself. I haven't found recovery hard. I've got to be honest with you. I have not, I've not struggled with giving up drink or giving up drugs. I think I'd literally just filled myself up. I don't think there was any room left. But um, life's good now. I, I, I've got um, I've got everything. I had everything before. If you walk past the house, nice cars, nice house. But I didn't appreciate any of it, whereas now I do. I get in my car. I had to wait for a drink driving ban to be over before I could get a car when I come out of rehab. And I've got a car now. And just when I first got, I actually wanted the police to pull me over and breathalyze me just so I could say, look, I don't drink anymore. But yeah, I don't, uh, I've stopped thinking that now. Sometimes I do, though, if I'm driving down the road. 10 o'clock on the night, I think, well, please pull me over if I, if I see the police, but they haven't as yet. But, um, you know, this, I, I had five drink drivings. I drove everywhere drunk for years, Go, even going to work at half five in the morning, I'll be drinking. But now I don't, and I don't want to. And I'm happy with my life. I'm content for the first time ever. I don't want anything. I don't need anything. I don't ask for anything. I just, if I do today, I'll finish now. If I do today what I did yesterday, there's a good chance that I won't drink or pick up any drugs. And if I do the same tomorrow as, I've done, as I'm going to, going to today, there's a good chance I won't drink tomorrow or take drugs. That's as far ahead as I'm prepared to think. You know, and, and 
I think I say one day at a time. Now some people don't like that, but it is. Don't, don't I don't worry about what's going to happen in six months. It is what it is. But I shall. Uh, I'll leave it there. And thanks for listening.